Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. Did you know that the song The Lion Sleeps Tonight is based on a traditional Zulu nursery rhyme first written and recorded in South Africa by Zulu artist Solomon Linda in the 1920s? And Wimowe is a mispronunciation of Uyimbube, which is Zulu for You Are a Lion. In episode 9 of the B-Side, I speak to Sydney-born, New York-based hip-hop journalist turned strategist and lover of left-field introductions, Mr. Mark Pollard, strategy CEO of Mighty Jungle. Strategy CEO, by the way, is a made-up title, but according to Mark, no one takes him seriously unless he puts strategy in front of everything. But the title isn't too far off reality. Mark lives and breathes strategy. He writes, gives talks, and does strategy consulting and strategy training for the likes of The Economist, Twitter, Facebook, Euronews, Mozilla, the Wall Street Journal, Poberi, and a bunch of agencies around the world as well. He's a prolific dude. He's also the founder and host of the Sweathead podcast and is about to publish his first book, Strategy is Your Words. Mark and I dig deep into the power of words and how they're used to give structure and purpose to the way we think, live, and work. We break down the role of a strategist and we jam on how we can create meaning from the mess that life throws at us. Mark is a super cool cat, a razor-sharp dude. I really enjoyed talking to him and spending a little bit of time inside his amazing head as well. I'm sure you're going to love this episode. Cheers. We are in the house with Mark Pollard. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. I've had a crazy few days. I haven't slept much, but I'm here for this, JB. JB, you haven't called me JB for a very long time. It has been nigh on 15 years. I can't believe it. I've followed your journey into all sorts of things from hip-hop to publishing to man, martial arts to God knows what, all the good stuff, all the good stuff through to your journeys overseas. So I feel like I'm, I, I haven't missed anything, but, you know, I'm sure oh, no. that's only the filter that I'm seeing through the wonderful social media channels that we have, you know. You know, it's like your family, right? I don't have to call my family, you know. I, I know what's going on. <laughs> I've got social media, man. You know, I've got social media. So yeah, I'm a, I, I, so I have to apologize. First of all, thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. The yeah. listeners are going to friggin' love your brain, your mind. I want you uh, to talk about pretty much all the shit you've been up to over the last few years. Let's just say a few years. It makes me feel better. Then I must apologize. It's been so long. So that's it. That's cool. We see, we see each other. It's all good. If we saw each other all the time, we'd probably get bored with each other. Yeah, that's true. So what that you, you have been busy. What, what's been happening? What's been keeping you busy? Oh, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. I mean, I announced doing this 100-day strategy summer camp for people around the world. It's 10 bucks a month, and I'm going to throw like half an hour to an hour a day and people can stretch it if they'd like of, of training for a hundred days. And the turnout has been incredible. I now announced it like a week before actually uh, opening it up to people. And it's just been nuts. Been editing, editing a lot of videos for it. And those videos take ages. Sometimes it's like 10 mm. to 16 hours to make 20 minutes of okay video. So I haven't been sleeping that much. Uh, I also have a book that's being printed. It took, about two years, to, almost two years to get to this point where I can say it's literally on the press right now and I'll have that in the US in, in July. Yeah, so there's, yeah. there's 
lot, a lot of events, a lot of talks, been to so many countries in the past few years. And um, yeah, it's not easy. I mean, I'm relatively unfiltered, but I'd, I would hope that you understand that uh, I'm very good at not being happy and at crying sometimes and just struggling <laughs> and not knowing where I fit in the world. Because that's, uh, like, that's basically how I experience myself. Oh, man, you and me both. I really, I don't know if I've grown up yet. I always think when I become an adult, I'll be able to get a handle on all of this shit. But <laughs> I don't think that's ever going to happen, man. And I think that's part of it. And it's part of why I really enjoy, you know, your podcast and uh, the stuff you post on social media. It's just so raw and real. And, and I thank you, man. I think uh, a lot of us can thank you because I really think we need more of that in the world, This more more of this authenticity. So it sounds like you've been bloody busy. Uh, I really can't um, say that I have been as busy as you since leaving Leo's I. Yeah, I mean, my life was being what was pretty much your standard advertising creative. Got out of advertising in my forties, and then got a little child. So, a bit of an update for you. I'm not sure if you've seen on my social media I, I, channels, dude, dude. I've seen, but you know what? There, there are definitely people from around that Leo Burnett time, and on either side yeah. of it. Every now and then, you might not see them that much on the internet. And I think, especially as people go through relationship. As they end, they don't seem to post that much in general. And then all of a sudden, someone new, and you're like, hang on, did I miss something? Or like, what was all that? What's going on there? Yeah, I, there's a few I'm the people happiest I know. I've ever, I'm the happiest I've ever been, man. It was really weird. It's all sort of happened around about the bottle same time. That. My, yeah, I totally, man. If we could bottle that shit, I honestly think people would be just junkies, just strung out on it because it's so good. It's so well, good. Well, it's not easy. Weird. And, you know, you, you, you're 40s, you're into your second or third lifetime at least potentially you know and how you understand yeah, yeah. yourself and how you interact with the world so it sort of happened with when i was edging towards my 40s i think i met my wife when i was mid sort of 38 or something like that and i thought this is my best friend and we are we get along so well why does this feel so right something's gonna go wrong here but it didn't do you know do you know what i mean it was so strange and then everything else sort of fell into it i started questioning everything about my life under the assumption that things are, or should go wrong all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> like i just felt like my life was just destined for this you know but when things started going right i'm like what the fuck do i do with this <laughs> why are things yeah. all right what does it all feel so good something's gonna happen something's gonna happen i don't know where that comes from man i have no idea but anyway hey, I, speaking- I hope listens to your podcast <laughs> she listens to me ramble all the time, so she's probably sick of my bullshit. So why do they go for an hour? Like, seriously, can't you get them down to 30 seconds? <laughs> hey, man, let's go back. Give us the spiel, mate. Where are you from? What do you do? How? Why are you here? Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm from Sydney. I live in New York. I set up a rap magazine. I've been in the agency world since I was about 19. First 10 years were more in the digital agency space or digital department space doing user experience and information architecture, writing content, copy and stuff for websites. Really loved it. And one of the best things about that part of the world was the internet was a way to circumvent essentially the traditional world. And working in in agencies where there were people making ads for the traditional world, I always found that quite funny and identified as a bit of an outsider and rarely had any envy about people making TV ads because I was like, I'm I'm Mm -hmm. making websites about... Well, for me, it was about rap or, you know, I'm working on Audi for a website and it's amazing because people touch it all the time and I can see what they're doing. It's really exciting yeah, yeah. and I, I just loved it. And then when I was about 28, I joined Leo Burnett and I freelanced in the digital department as a producer, had my first kid and was like, I'm not going full time unless it's a role that I really wanted to do and kind of started to understand account planning or strategy through Leo Burnett with Todd Sampson and a whole a whole bunch of people there. Yeah, and then the only other things I would add is I've, I've always written on the internet and 
I think it's really important to make stuff if you're thinking for a living. You've got to publish so you can learn and kind of close the loop on that. Otherwise, you're just theorizing. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just like to practice and theorize. I like those two things together. I've been in New York for nine years now. And uh, you know, I came and I, I was hoping to do good work at scale. It's really hard. The stuff that we all took for granted in a lot of the agencies that I worked in in Sydney, for example, at Leo Burnett, and it's just a bunch of kids doing some stuff. And the attitude is like, it has to be good. It has to be award worthy. Why wouldn't it be that? And then you move countries and you're like, oh, not everyone thinks like that. Whoa, okay. Mm-hmm. And it's a whole other game of politics and people taking themselves seriously mm-hmm. and massive meetings and 50 people on emails. And it's higher stakes on the one hand, but also way, way more earnest and less of a center of gravity I found in the US around being creative in agencies, let alone in business. So what I've ended up doing is I do strategy consulting with companies like The Economist, Twitter, Facebook, Euronews in France, SoFi, which is this cool finance company in, on, in San Francisco, uh, La Colombe, which is an awesome coffee brand. I've worked with Poupery. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I've also set up and, and I managed a, an online community called Sweathead, which is a podcast with like half a million listens and 12,000 people in this community. Half a million listens. I've added. got about uh, half, a, half a percent of, of those listeners at the moment. So, any, any tips, yeah. mate? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll just keep going. Half of half the, a the percent. Tip. There you go. That's, that's my listener count. <laughs> the tip <laughs> with on. all of this stuff is, yeah, like the tip with all of this stuff is do it because you love it and you have to do it. Dude, and you th- that experience yourself what- in doing mm-hmm. it. Absolutely. And that goes back to what you were saying before. You do it because you have to. It's this innate thing inside of you. In my early 20s, I was making this rap magazine and doing radio and I would put on events and I'd make the posters for them and I had no money, but I'd go put them up at 4 a.m. down Parramatta Road in Sydney and I, and I loved it. And at the same time, I feel that that experience of being someone covering other people is quite similar to being a strategist in that you're still you're very arm's length away from your own self-expression. And so I've been trying to close that gap, the the gap on wanting to self-express, feeling frustrated that I'm not self-expressing and then doing it in the past few years. And I'm trying to do it in a savage way. So that's where all this energy comes from. And I see a lot of people in the agency world and the strategy world who are so removed and frustrated because they're removed from actually expressing, but they Mm. get absorbed into the frustration. They don't know why they're frustrated. And it's like, go do some art, Mm. get it out of you. You've got to put it somewhere. And that's, that's been sort of, what I came to America to, to learn. To learn. It, it, I'm not sure if it's the same in America, but Australia seems to have this, um, th- there's this constant battle, who owns the idea? And I always found that quite confronting because I'm a firm believer in, obviously the reason for this podcast, it, it started on the inside that ideas or creativity, um, creativity is the very thing that makes us human. It's literally from the times we were on the plains of Africa in the east of Africa, carving in um, seashells and stringing them, stringing them around our necks or painting, wall painting to communicate or whatever, walking up to Siberia and creating these elaborate um, carvings out of mammoth tusks or whatnot. It, it's literally, it's always been, and it's always been through collaboration and working together with a diverse range of people in that tribe and having to understand them um, emotionally, socially, and so on, and the different dynamics between them. It made for more creative outcomes. And look at us now. We've got iPods and rockets and whatnot. You know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I, I kind of just got fed up with the behavior and the attitudes of some people in some creative departments who mm. were patronizing, 
rude. Like you just, if you treated people like they treated people out in the street, you'd get smashed in the face. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. Why do you get to hide behind your title and your sense of self-importance, be rude to people, make people cry? It's not good enough. At the same yeah. time, I, creativity, I think, is necessarily a narcissistic pursuit. Then it just depends on how you're going to bring it to life and whether you are compassionate and care about other people, want to bring them along with you. But there's like at least 20 different little topics in um, in what you just went through. Oh, there totally is. And it's one that I feel quite passionate about because I firmly believe that if we're going to call ourselves, um, if anything, communicators and creative communicators at that, we have to embrace creativity in all its forms. And um, yeah. People have got yeah. to earn money, right? We're, we live yeah. in a capitalistic society. So if you remove that, then sure, maybe it's a little bit different. Scandinavia is very renowned for having more of a circular culture, like people around a table. There's a famous agency mm. there, um, mm. Forsman, and they have, uh, they have review. There's no hierarchy in this agency, and the reviews happen on the floor. It's called the floor. And you mm. lay your work down, and then you debate it and get on with it. But that's because they yeah. have a... a less rigid hierarchy there Hmm. elsewhere it's different yeah yeah there's no way i guess that's the that's the safe that is the safe conclusion to get to right there is no perfect way i think what we can say and this is backed by science diversity does bring more creativity and it goes back to that whole creative abrasion and and and, you know having an eclectic group of people will you know two heads are better than one i mean these are you could rattle hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of these theories that suggest that if you bring diverse groups of people together then you know they, you you will have unexpected outcomes and if we define yes. creativity as an unexpected outcome then i would agree i agree with that and then i'll also say that you put 50 people in a room to write a creative brief brief it's going to be a shit creative brief, right? <laughs> yes in terms of um something that people don't know about you what what's your b-side mark pollard sometimes i like to get drunk and dance by myself at 1am that's pretty damn good what do you dance to is it still hip-hop is it is it punk is it Depends what I'm Hard. listening to. It's probably pretty emo, and I don't do it that often. I should probably do it more often. But like every, every like two or three months, I'll catch myself after a few drinks, and there's this song by a guy called Thomas Barford. I think, I think he's Danish, and he was in the states. And he's got it's this melancholic song called Happy, and the lyrics are like uh, it's a remix or something. It's got the lyrics are something like All my life, people keep slipping away. They keep dying on me, man. They keep dying on me, man. I just want to be happy, and this beat just goes. That's and the funny thing is that the song has a hilarious music video of an old guy just dancing drunk in his home. And I'm like, I've done that too, that song. <laughs> there's usually a sense of like melancholy, you know, it's like yeah, it won't yeah. be what you expect. Oh, that's, that's cool. And dancing. it like once every three months or so, mate. Yeah, that, that's okay. I, man. Like, it doesn't matter. If you, if you stopped it once a week, I'd be okay. I mean, once every three months. <laughs> once every yeah, three months. Is well, I within, dance more. well within fully functioning alcoholic territory, mate. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> the drinking is more often than that. Although the thing is like what I've found is when I've got a real mission at, at hand that I don't really feel like drinking. I mean, I've been doing some mm. silly hours this week and I, I, in the past couple of weeks, and I've, you know, but I haven't been drinking as much. You know, it's like maybe once mm. a week. And Who would you say some of your biggest influences were? I know you've spoken about this on your own podcast, but maybe for our listeners. No, there's, there's been a lot of influences over the years. There's definitely like a, a rap flavor sometimes in the way I speak and it's in the back mm. of my mind often uh, 
Carl Jung, I find really interesting. Mm. Nietzsche, I find really interesting. There's an author, Marlon James, who wrote a book called A Brief History of Seven Killings. And I've taken a lot of inspiration from how he wrote that book, which is to say that each chapter is written in a different voice. There are characters that repeat, but there are different voices there. And that was a beautiful book to read. And I borrow some of these techniques in the strategy work that I do. Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way, Victor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. From a strategy point of view, definitely Todd Sampson from Leo Burnett, who kind of gave me my first full-time planning job. Scott mm-hmm. Davis, who was like head of strategy after Todd became CEO, also really important, just seeing the way that someone could insist and then execute a strategy on a piece of paper that didn't even have a logo on it and had as few words as possible. I say, like, oh, that's what we can do? Okay. So I've mm-hmm. spent the past 15 years trying to do that. So, the, you know, I watch and read a lot of stuff, sports science. I'm into understanding soccer slash football and how the, all the strategies and tactics work there. It's just, I mean, I take inspiration from all over. Yeah, yeah. My reference point for Todd is quite strong because obviously we both worked at the same time with the same man. And that was when he was the, I think he was the head of planning at the time. And we started by talking about collaboration and creativity living um, outside of silos, not within them. That, rightly or wrongly, may have been my, maybe I'm looking back on that period with rose-coloured glasses, but that really felt like the culture of Leo's at the time. Now, I know Todd wasn't the CEO then, but he was the head of planning. And I can honestly remember him saying to me, I showed a bit of an interest in planning then. And when I spoke to Todd about some strategy ideas I had, he said, mate, these are great. Come into my office whenever you want. Doors always open albeit there were no doors, <laughs> Do you know, and it was really sort of very encouraging, very encouraging, you know, and I you think yeah, you guys yeah. were the same. I'd go down and speak to you and Tony and in your little pod there and we'd jam on thoughts and ideas and I'd throw like stupid Venn diagrams as though I'd invented them and you go, dude, yeah, that's nice, but it's been done before, whatever, you know, like it was just this really nice, open, welcoming, vulner- be vulnerable, you know, you were allowed permission to be vulnerable sort of environment. Which I, I know we're, we're all trying to replicate now as leaders and so on, but um, it doesn't always happen. What's keeping you busy now? What are some of the projects you're working on at the moment? Well, I'm launching this book and I've got this 100-day strategy summer strategy. camp happening. That thousand, like a lot of people have signed up for it. It's kind of blown me away. And, uh, you know, my aim is just to create – I want to create merchandise. I want to publish more books. You know, mm. I want to do things that aren't just nonfiction. I want to do fiction. And I'm, I'm just creating this weird universe that's not really hanging together as tightly as it could because it's sprawled mm. over the internet on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all over the place. And I just want to get it together and uh, slowly focus myself. So that's Speaking what's happening. Of, I mean, a lot of stuff's happening. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff happening. Maybe we could just focus on strategy as your words. I, I really love the work you're doing with that, and both from the stuff you post on social media as well as just the, the brand that you're building. What does strategy is your words actually mean, and what is the book? Why, why have you produced it? You know, who, Who's your audience? Um, what can they do with the knowledge, the insights within? Yeah, it's it's funny it's this book i wanted to write a book for ages and i I just had mental blocks i was exhausted and you know a bunch of stuff happened i ended up just sitting down and writing it over four months and half of it is uh, half of it's my go-to strategy techniques helping people understand what ideas are what they're not you know linear and lateral thinking per edward de bono what insights are what they're not how i see different ways to write strategy and so that's a big chunk of the book and a lot of that material has been gathered since 
you know, my time at Leo's and, and before and stuff that I've taught or around the world and practiced. And so that was relatively easy to put together. It's just I had never written it longhand. And I'm try- I've tried to make this book not feel like a business book. It's a bit weird and absurdist and maybe self-indulgent and poetic in places. But I just wanted to put something out there that was not another dry strategy book. When I was coming up, it was hard to find anything that was super practical. There are a lot of legendary books, but a lot of them felt post-rationalized or they felt too serious. This one's like, I want this to get in people's heads in a way where they're like, oh, he had that experience that I just had 10 years ago. Oh, wow. And so the front part of the book deals with a lot of words that strategy people use, like clarity, meaning, truth, lone wolf, feeling like an imposter. And I just try to pull them apart and think through my own philosophy about these words, but in, a, in an odd way. It's, it's weird and I hope it's very accessible. And it's, yeah, it's like 392 pages. We had a successful Kickstarter last year, raised about 40,000 US dollars, which blew me away. And um, amazing, yeah. yeah, it's funny well when you, yeah. yeah, well, it's, it's funny when you talk about personal brand. I don't really think about it that much. I'm just out there existing. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. I think that I put so much stuff out there is uh, it's through the strategy world and the advertising world that I get to have the kinds of conversations and meet the kinds of brains that turn me on. And a lot of the rest of the time, I'm not that loud. I don't talk that much because I come across aren't interested in anything that I think or say. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I, I live with them, you know? So that's why I, I put so much stuff out there. But the book, the book's really just a primal scream. Um, there's a lot of hidden stuff in there that's very in-jokey for me, but it's essentially just trying to get young strategy folk access to really practical tools and then it's a slap in the face of an industry that takes itself too seriously in parts of the world and you see these 100 slide presentations that don't make sense that use massive words it's like you know you probably could have said that in in three words and they probably could have been one syllable words and that is more powerful than whatever you just forced me to watch for two hours so that's what's going on with the book that's brilliant and that brings me to one of my bugbears as well I, i use that it's almost like um if you can imagine a red thread. And I think what a lot of people do, especially in meetings where you're getting to know a new bunch of people, or you've got to give a presentation, a pitch or whatever else, you see people build their presentation around this tangled red thread, which is now a knot that you've presented to everyone in in that meeting. And they spend the whole meeting trying to untangle this red threaded knot, as opposed to you know, you giving them this almost rope, red rope that you can yeah, yeah, yeah. pass to them and guide them along for this journey the way you would through a complex cave, you know. That visual came to mind for me with a lot of people watching them act as opposed to communicate. A lot of the time, the concepts are quite sound, but it's just there's so much be. about how they c- communicate these concepts and using that red thread analogy, is it a tangled knot? Is it a conceptual knotted mess, a cognitive mess that you're letting your audience untangle? Or is it just a simple thread that where you guide people through your presentation, you know? So that just came to mind for me. The other thing is, it's funny, your friend uh, Julian Cole put this post out on um, LinkedIn the other day about verbal versus visual words. He used the example of uh, visual words being those like... Uh, I think it was like sheep and lightning and so on and and verbal words being innovate, conceptualize. And and, and I thought that was quite interesting, not to get into rhetoric theory, but you, you think about the successful politicians and rightly or wrongly Trump and his use of visual words, i.e. build a wall, versus Malcolm Turnbull, who 
rightly or wrongly, is part of the same political ideological wing. But he used words like innovation and progress and not so much visual concepts that people could unpack. They were conceptual knots, ideas that people couldn't quite visualise, you know, whereas I can visualise a wall. For the longest time, whenever I've written a brief or I've seen briefs and I've had to review them, if I can't see it, which is to say, if I can't visualise it, if the words aren't visual, then I'm mm. like, keep, keep going. I don't, I don't know what this is. And so one of the checkpoints I have when I'm doing strategies is, is can, I, can I see that? There is some research that I refer to in the book about monogamous words as well, which is a, another mm. way you could look at the, the way that uh, Julian broke down visual and verbal. Monogamous words are words that don't cheat. So the re- there's re- research, I, love and I don't know how supported and defended it is, but there's some research out there that talks about how we tend to remember monogamous words, words that don't have a lot of other meanings. So these big words, these grinding, flourishing, often like Latin French-based words as opposed to my Viking words like stoush. I know what a stoush is, <laughs> uh, but, you know, in a empower and holistic and synergy and all this kind of stuff. It's like, what, what on earth is that? I, I, don't, I can't see it. I don't know what it is. And if, if, if I was writing them on a creative brief and gave them to a creative department, they'd be right to kick me out because it doesn't make sense. Mm, mm. Uh, and so the, I think those two thoughts, you know, can I see it or I can't see it, keep going. And then the sense of words that don't cheat are also useful for how we communicate. But I want to give you an example because this has been on my mind. Um, in the book, but also recently i talk a little bit about a famous italian footballer andrea pirlo and inigo montoya from the princess bride and i compare their strategy and it's basically how i set up like a lot of what i do in life let alone my lessons my classes and and this book and the thing is i feel like andrea's main andrea pirlo's main strategy in football was the word surprise now that is not a very visual word in some what word was that sorry surprise the word is surprise, right? Now, that, I, that it's not necessarily a vi- very visual word, but I can tell you that it means a lot to me. I get it because it's at the heart of what he does. And it's very different use of the word compared to someone in a meeting who's like, we should do some surprise and delight, where it's just like some <laughs> flash in the pan tactic. <laughs> surprise and delight. Yeah, but like, because so, so for me, the word surprise operates deeply mm. within him that he an entire football career, one of the most famous footballers out of Italy. He was one of the most famous in the world for a part, or at least in Europe. And his whole thing was about playing in really surprising ways. And you can argue mm. that most of what he did fits under that word. But like it's, for me, it's mm. not a visual word and it's not a monogamous mm. word. Yet but it's it's a, when you say surprising, operated in, played the game in surprising ways, I wonder if Michael... Jordan set himself that same way of playing the game because he didn't have to go to such lengths to play in such a surprising manner, but he did. Yeah. And it felt like that was part, not so much part of his brand or his personality. It was just something that he made an effort to do. And, and mm-hmm. you've watched the Netflix series. I can't remember the name. No, of it. I have my wife has. I want to. Highly recommend it, man. It's really quite interesting how driven that guy was and how purposeful he was in playing a certain way. And it was, <laughs> interestingly enough, it wasn't so much about the flair. It was establishing his dominance over the other players on the court. Yeah. So, the word dominance there, again, it's not a really visual word. So, one of the, one of the words that came through this research about being a faithful word was the word pineapple, right? Most people, if they know the word, they know what it is and it's hard to not know the word as being one thing. 
Uh, now that you can use it in other ways, but you know, whereas yeah. a word like uh, empowerment or holistic or synergistic, what does that, like, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know what it means. And I think dominance and surprising, they're somewhere in between. And at mm. some point, mm. it depends. It, the you know, words are social objects, so at some point, it depends on how the author intended them and whether the recipient. Which, if it's on a, a business document, the recipient could be one person. That one person needs to understand it in the same way. But if it's out in public, then these words can become uh, more and more diluted, as opposed to mm. pineapple or yeah, passion yeah. fruit or yeah. frog. Yeah, that's the challenge we have with a base of a Indo-European and Germanic, then more recently French, Latin, Greek sort of language structure, isn't it? Because a lot of these words get misused, and we don't get to the heart of what we're trying to say because we don't quite understand communication isn't so much about showing your repertoire of and your toolkit of complex um, foreign words you know because you know they are greek words and latin words and so on yeah but we're also not that far from the days when in some countries using the french language and the formal version of the french language was what you did if you were successful so yeah, yeah you know yeah. language language is a social object and would you would you say to- let's let's take this offline um, let's create a campaign that. with surprise and delight at its heart and look yeah, for opportunities to create a money can't buy experience <laughs> is nah. that the new language of uh, you know the elite <laughs> I bloody hope not. Well, it's try- I mean, pe- people who use that language are trying to signal that they're educated and that they're insiders and that, therefore, if you yeah. don't understand it or follow it, you're an outsider and you're yeah. not special. That's absolutely what we all do with language. Tribalism. People do it in rap. Yeah, yeah, yeah Every yeah. subculture it's tribalism. It. Yeah, I mean, it, com- it comes down to evolutionary psychology, which you can understand through three main things, fighting for resources, fighting for status, and fighting for mating opportunities. Language. Mm could play a role in all of those things. The thing we're poking at right now is the fight for status through empty language. Do you think, though, from a pragmatic perspective, I need to write briefs, I need to create a culture of clarity because there's a real benefit financially, really, at the end of the day, to creating far more clarity in our briefs, in the, in our engagements. Do you do What would you say to CMOs? So, I mean, the, you go back to who the audience of a marketing brief is. It's often... The CMO, it's like the marketing team, and one of the main jobs of a marketing brief is to unlock resources and money, etc. Right, and so it's it's a functions I think primarily as an internal document that happens to travel to agencies. I don't find most marketing briefs written very clear headed. They're often you can tell that the most of them are started by copy and paste from the last one. They're full of big language, but you know I feel I feel like a bold marketing brief is a, it's a page maybe a page and a half with one or two syllable words, write it like you're writing a letter to someone you haven't seen in a long time. And Mm. if you've got an agency that knows what they're doing and they're not trying to rip you off and you've got brains who are engaged with your company, those brains are going to be thinking about stuff all the time for you. You you won't know it. It won't be reflected in the timesheets. And then you're going to think that you can't trust them at the same time. It's just this weird thing. Just keep it short, page, page and a half. Make the problem dramatic and, and in plain English, you know, really focus on the problem and you don't need most of the details a lot of the mark because i i work with marketing organizations and in-house strategy teams that have you know basically planners who've gone client side and i I review their templates and i look at a lot of the ways that they write briefs and a lot of marketing briefs are five or ten pages long and sometimes i'll review about 20 of them and you're like these are all the same brief and i don't know what to do with them and Hmm. the goals So each brief is basically the entire path to purchase. You know, can we increase awareness, consideration, Mm -hmm. uh, intent, 
purchase, relevant salience, like or everything. And you're like, mm. how much money have you got? Ten grand? Like, come on. Yeah. So yeah. just simple. You can't. And you can't. You, yeah. Yeah. I find that as well. I mean, obviously, I'm client side now, and I think I get quite frustrated with. Um, either putting too much into a brief or too little, there's always this ebb and flow between them. We need to help them help us ultimately. You know, yeah. and I-, I feel like a marketing brief or any brief, there's two concepts or two analogies for it that are kind of similar. One is to treat a marketing brief or a creative brief as a dare, right? So you're going to come in, I'm going to brief you. There's going to be a piece of paper and briefs don't just happen through pieces of paper. They have happened through conversations over time. But if you can throw down the gauntlet, as in the brief, and it's like, you think you can solve this? Because we've got this really clear-headed problem. We trust you with it. And by the way, we really do believe in you. We're not going to patronize you. It's not some silly jump ball with 10 agencies all fighting for you know, less margin. That, that whole game's ridiculous. You're hurting yourself there, marketers. But mm. like, here's a dare. Got a page. Can you do it? Go. And mm. you will get people swarming around your brief and wanting to work on your business if you treat people like that. The other idea is, I heard it through Marshall McLuhan, who's a famous, uh, I guess, media or consumer culture philosopher. And, and he was borrowing from a musician and he said that artists lay traps. Whether you're a stand-up comedian, you're doing conceptual art, you're a slam poet, you're a writer, every sentence, every painting, every drawing, whatever you're doing, you're trying to lay a trap for people to fall into. Again, yeah, yeah. marketing brief, creative brief. Try to get people to fall into it because it's like, whoa, that I didn't expect to hear that level of honesty and that one line from, I know you've got tons and tons of research, that one line you gave me, that's all, oh my God, my, I can't stop thinking about this now. That's what yeah. a brief yeah. is supposed to do, whether it's a creative brief or, or a marketing brief. It, we, we've, we've talked about the power of words and your book is Strategy Is Your Words. I'd like you to unpack... <laughs> to to use more of a verbal word, what strategy actually is? What does strategy mean? Yeah, big question. So I tend to think about things in as broad a way as possible before being really specific. To me, strategy is an informed opinion about how to win. You take information, you come up with some stuff, you don't know the future, you're predicting it, you state your argument, you state your opinion, and you're aiming to win. Traditionally, winning does mean that you're in a fight for resources. It could be budget, it could be sales, whatever it is. And then that's to separate strategy from tactics, where tactics are the steps that would bring the strategy to life. And uh, I've got this little story that I like to tell that my son gave to me. There's a really good chess scene in New York. And a few years ago, I don't know how old he was, nine or 10, he beat his chess teacher. And my kids both play a ton of chess at a, a relatively high level. And uh, my son, who rarely says a mean thing, we're walking down the street from school and he goes, oh, dad, I, I beat my chess teacher. And he looked disgusted. And I was like, what, what's wrong? And he goes, oh, he, just had, uh, he just had tactics, no strategy. And in mm. chess, tactics are really specific things. And we talked about what that meant because I love learning about these ideas through my kids' lives, whether it's like ballet or soccer or, or chess in this case. And he, he's basically explained that tactics are things that you would do in chess that without a plan, you end up in a really bad position and you're probably going to lose. So tactics without a strategy can make you weak. And in chess, they're like going for a four-move checkmate or trying to fork fork two pieces. And yeah, Mm. you could try to fork as in attack two pieces, but if your piece is unguarded and you're in a bad position, you might lose within a few moves. Um, And so the thing is, in the broader sense, strategy is an informed opinion about how to win. Then, the thing, then, then you have to think about, well, if you apply it more specifically and you rub it against the idea of account planning, 
where account planning was largely about making advertising more relevant to a particular audience. Mm -hmm. And doing that is strategic, but traditionally within the advertising world, it wasn't called strategy. I feel like the high use, the overuse of the word strategy within advertising in the past decade is really due to the Americanization of advertising globally because strategy is an important American idea, probably Mm -hmm. inherited somewhat from the role and the importance of the military in in the US and of college sports and college sports coaches who are the highest paid people in academia (laughs) or adjacent academia. Some of these people are earning millions of dollars. I think you've picked up on a really interesting point. Sun Tzu was a general and a writer and Napoleon a general and eventually an emperor. Their occupation occupations they would identify as being strategic do you think they would call themselves strategists i don't know i don't know what they would call themselves but like strategy is the act of looking at a situation and trying to work out how to mm. make it better for yourself are you more of a general yeah but it's yeah. <laughs> you're not that you would call uh, strategists um, generals but it is essentially marshalling ideas right you're analyzing your situation how you got into that situation you're thinking about what the situation could be in the future depending on different scenarios and then you're allocating resources to try to achieve some scenario that's what doing strategy is i love the mark ritson model whereby he he talks about how you don't even bother thinking about tactics until you've got the solid strategic foundations and you've got the marketing research to back that then you go into your segmentation, then your targeting, then your positioning, then tactics, i.e. product, price, place, promotion, and the tactics around those aspects. The thing that trips us up in advertising and marketing is that there are a lot of silent adjectives in front of the word strategy, like brand, mm. digital, social content. They're not always silent, but there's a mm. turf war, especially if they uh, are silent. And mm. it's 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 kind of frustrating on the one hand because I – you know, back in the day, I would have said, oh, you can't have a mobile strategy. That's ridiculous. Mobile is a tactic. But now, based mm-hmm. on the way that I understand the word strategy, I think you can have a mobile strategy. Yeah. I'm totally flipped <laughs> on that. That's something I've changed my mind on. Yeah. Because yeah, you're yeah. trying to solve problems through some kind of understanding. That is what strategy is. I've been on this decades plus long journey just to understand what I do in a particular way where I've overthought things so that I can get mm-hmm. somewhere simple. Yeah. And that's. Yeah not unlike other people. And I'm absolutely not comparing myself to someone like Bruce Lee, but he was also someone who wrote a lot about what he did. He read Mm. a lot of books and then he wrote like the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, which is a lot of his thinking. And he applied a lot of his thinking in... I think he was way ahead of his time. The whole formlessness and and fluidity and taking, being brutally honest about what does and doesn't work and adopting that into your arsenal. And, you know, I just feel like there's so much to learn from that. In terms of professions and styles, to use that Bruce Lee analogy, like strategy, strategists, creatives suffer the same sort of thing. A lot of art directors or copywriters have moved away from these traditional roles and they've used more abstract terms to describe what it is they do for whatever reason. I don't know, rightly or wrongly. And, you know, I was probably guilty of doing this as well. You call yourself a creative as opposed to a creative director or you an occupation name you call yourself a a creative as opposed to a copywriter i highly doubt that terence malick or steven spielberg would call themselves creatives i think if you sat down with them and said i'm a creative what do you do he wouldn't say oh so am i that's cool he'd say i'm a film director or i'm a screenwriter um i hope yeah. that the films are creative as an outcome as a, as a gauge to the quality of my work i'm really reluctant to use the cr- word creative in any other way than as an adjective and i have 
friends, dear friends in the industry and I catch up with them and they use a particular phrase that I'm going to say now and it's okay because I know them and I like them. But I'll tell you what, this particular phrase is like getting out a really long, big trout and slapping it in my face. And the phrase is, as a creative. I find mm. it so patronizing. And it's like no one can understand me because no one else is creative. And I'm, I'm sitting there as someone who feels creative, but I don't say it at people. And I don't shove it down their throats all the time. And every conversation I don't fall back on, well, as a creative, like, mm. it's cool. Like, I can feel empathy for you without ha- you having to, like, reinforce your insecure identity in every conversation. That's not what I think yeah. about my friends. But that's one of those phrases that's a total trigger phrase for me. I'm, I try to be chilled with it these days. It's so arrogant and insecure yeah because people who are like prolific they're not walking around going well as a creative i think in america they are like i've gone to conferences like design conferences and people go as a creative yeah Uh, but i i just think that's become like a cultural tick they're not sort of using that language in fields where they are at the arguably the height of creativity i.e the film industry and art and so on i don't think artists call themselves creatives uh, they call themselves painters, for God's sake. They don't call themselves creatives, you know. So I think if they're not doing it, then I really think we need to have a good hard look at ourselves. And the other thing I think we need to do is acknowledge that we work in marketing. As much as it pains us, we are at the beck and call of the CMO. If you're working in an advertising agency, here's some news for you guys. You aren't working in Hollywood. You're working in the marketing industry. <laughs> we'll park that one there because I'm sure we could spend a lot of time. I think a lot of people know that and it just it pains them. It pains them. It does pain them. I know that. I know. But I think... And you know well, what's really weird, though? I've, I've met a lot of people in the past few years because like, I didn't talk that... Like, the creative department, they just used to keep to themselves and a lot of agencies I worked with at. But, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've caught up with a lot of people in the past few years in the Northern Hemisphere. And, like, I've got a friend, Vicky Ross, who's a pretty well-known uh, copywriter and organizer in London of the copywriting industry there. There's a great mm-hmm. community around her. I caught up, caught up with her. And she's like, I always wanted to be a copywriter. And that's who she is. That's what she wants to do for the rest of her life. Yeah, and she's wanted yeah. to do that since forever. I'm like, wow. I, that's most awesome. people I know, like, Absolutely. I wanted I wanted to write a novel. I wanted to write a movie. And I'm, I'm writing copy. And I, and I like it. But the energy that she said that with, I was like, that's cool. I've not heard it so yeah. proudly and confidently, maybe ever. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I, I honestly love that. And why don't we be proud of those uh, professions like copywriting and instead of trying to wrap them in this kind of this abstract creative concept that you know create to say you're a creative is essentially saying i'm a human being it's nonsense i agree i agree i I do believe that creativity is innate in all humans the the critique of that is then well what do you call people who are prolifically creative do you just call Mm. them creative too and i'm like that that to me is (laughs) super creative a minor problem Mm. it's a minor problem because if you don't acknowledge that most humans are capable of creativity you're denying something that's intrinsic to humanity and i think that is more important than what do you call the most prolific people who are creative because to your point maybe they don't even use that word maybe they're like i don't know i make films what what, i don't know yeah Um, but it's it's funny because a couple of words that we might think about often don't even exist in other languages the word insight doesn't exist in spanish for example oh really really yeah i think it's a, a scandinavian word which is interesting and and depression i don't think that word or even the the concept in the way that we would generally understand it i don't think that exists in some languages as well Mm, mm. it's it's, i I was speaking fascinating i I was speaking to my um my brother-in-law is a he's a lawyer as well as a a bit of a scholar and an expert on um, ancient chinese um, culture and history and so on and i was asking him about the body that endorses words in the Chinese diaspora. And 
I said computer. How did you create the word computer in Chinese, uh, both in written form and, and verbal form? And I found it really interesting that the word for computer is a combination of two characters, one electricity, the other brain. Don't you find that fascinating? Like electricity or electric brain being the literal translation for computer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the idea of a computer modeling a brain, I, I think that's a relatively, it's a relatively old idea. And in some ways, it's really intriguing. And in other ways, it's very distracting. <laughs> like <it's- laughs> we sort of talked about a few things at Painus. Is there anything that's caught your attention from a strate- strategist's standpoint? Do you think brands should go quiet? Um, what are your thoughts on that general topic with what marketers are doing now and i mean my thought on anything to do with communication is try to try to communicate from a place of rawness and honesty and then modulate your tone based on how you see the brand coming to life and based on what's going on in the world right now i mean i was kicking around an idea with somebody in australia recently with with a guy called mike boyd and it was about uh potential COVID-19 tracing technology and we came up with this campaign thought a strategy which is to try to get stubborn Australians to realize that if they use this technology doesn't have a name we weren't sure of the feature set but if they use this technology it will keep their friends around longer so they can take the piss out of them longer right that was like (laughs) in a sentence a longish sentence a strategy to try to get this product into people's heads now that idea is a bit cheeky. You could execute it in a really rude way or you could execute it in a compassionate, gentle way. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, to, to me, some of the questions around this, people just back out of even answering them and they're just, they just run a cliche. And it's like, I, I just, I don't care. Like, I don't get too lost in all that macro stuff anyway. My, my job and the way that I focus my days is literally trying to give attention to hundreds of people who do strategy because they're my people. They think for a living. A lot of them feel isolated, mm. a bit broken. Mm. Some of them have grown up with trauma, not all of them, but a lot. Mm. And so I, I wake up and I'm like, how can I contribute to my community? Because that, that's who they are yeah. and that makes me feel fulfilled. Your community, looking after your community. Are there any themes that you've noticed of late? Because, you know, it is quite a, I guess, a confronting time for some people. It's probably the most disruptive professional set of circumstances that a generation has seen. No, look, look, there's two, there's two things. Like the serious part of this is that I get nervous when people go silent and mm. there, there are people that I'm around, whether I'm watching them on, you're usually watching them on Instagram or Twitter or, or whether they're in Sweathead and every now and then I'm like, hey, where's that person? And I get mm. a little bit nervous about that. So that's yeah. something that I keep a, 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 an eye on. You know, I'm not here to be a savior. I'm just like, I've got some mm. thoughts. If you like, I'm great. If I can listen to you, I'm here. And then on the other hand, what I've loved about the little strategy community right now and and the advertising community in general is that there's been so much pressure on the industry in the past few years that I feel like we realize that we're not really just competing against each other anymore. We're competing against so much stuff out there. Mm. And I've really enjoyed a lot of the work I've done through podcasts, through through the interviews in the podcasts, et cetera, because I'm able to have conversations with people in public about stuff they probably don't talk about back in the office and it blows mm. me away. And some of these people have a lot to lose. That wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. No, and so right. I'm seeing yeah. that kind of candidness and compassion come to life now where people are grabbing each other and they're like, hey, let's let's get on a Zoom. We don't know each other. Let's get on a Zoom. Let's have our own happy hour. People mm. interacting with each other, responding to Facebook posts or on Twitter like, hey, 
you okay? What's going on? And I love seeing that. Ten years ago, I don't think it. Uh, I don't think it really would have happened. Yeah, I felt that as well. I think the discourse has changed somewhat to to be more compassionate. You know, as opposed to what it was pre. And I, I think it's probably a movement that's been happening for some time, a slow boil towards more purposeful marketing, more compassionate interactions professionally. So it's not a new thing. I, I do think and I do believe, though, that COVID has brought those things into focus. People are starting to be a bit more understanding of others and their feelings and so on. And it's not like we're being woke or we're sort of, you know, sort of doing anything to undermine the economy or whatever else. No, it's just we're being human, we're being practical, and we're understanding each other and we're communicating to each other in a way that is a little softer uh, maybe than we would have otherwise, you know? So Yeah, I, I, would, I would match that with two other camps. One is just people who are super obnoxious and arrogant and zero empathy. And then there's a, a final, a third camp to mash in here, which is people who will deny your own suffering if you don't know them personally and understand their suffering. Uh, yeah. So, if, yeah. so for example, like I've written and talked a little bit about depression over the years and I've yeah. put stuff up on the internet. And, and some, it's usually from a place of compassion, having talked to a lot of people, had, having read research, having listened to scientists and researchers talk about stuff or psychologists. Mm-hmm. And I might put something up about depression and someone's like, you don't know me. Who are you to talk about anything? You don't know my situation. You're an asshole. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, where did that come from? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all I said was to go walk among trees. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> so, yeah. At, yeah. At the same time, I'm like, I don't need that stuff, but I, I love that there is yeah. a growing group of, of people in the industry who are happy to be vulnerable and open and compassionate. Mm. And where does that um, not everyone. interest in depression come from? Is it the, 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 the aspects of the mind? I know you're quite a cerebral. Me, I hate having depression. I hate being yeah. depressed. I yeah. fucking hate it. And yeah, it's, I've been yeah. depressed on and off since I was a kid, like at 12, 13. I hate it. Yeah. That's yeah. where it comes from. It comes from trying to understand myself. Understand it. Yeah. Why am I so sad again? And Yeah, and it's, it's a shame that you can't talk about it more openly and, and do so in a way that is it is productive. You know, it's a productive discussion to be having because it comes from that space of trying to understand it, you know, and not liking it. And why can't I talk about this? Because I hope I can find insights and, and help others do the same, you know. I, I had for so long my head in the fire and I hated it and it burned yeah, and yeah. I was not doing work I was happy with and I was I was buying into the wrong illusion and now I'm like, well, what kind of life do I want to have? And I I've, I've, I try to build my life around exactly what I like to do, how I like to contribute and I've been fortunate enough to do it and it, I don't take it for granted. It could end mm. tomorrow. I don't know, but I'm going to keep going and I'm going to keep making it bigger and, and bigger and louder because the opposite for me is depression. You know, mm. this being active and, and trying to be, I'll use your word, trying to be, be prolific, the opposite of that is depression. And I, I, mm. I'm exhausted by it. I, I just don't want to be there anymore. And so I set mm. out on these quests. And, you know, the thing is traveling around the world a lot to do talks. I mean, you live in New York, if you're in this industry and you've been around for a while, you're probably going to be on a plane relatively often. That stuff mm. can get to me and I can feel... You know, you, you land somewhere and it's like it's Scandinavian, it's 3 a.m. And it's like, why is it sunny here? And then you're back <laughs> late, a few months later and it's winter and you're like, I didn't see the sun at all today. Where am I? I feel so alone right now. And yeah, it's all the yeah, emotions. Yeah, yeah. But having some kind of mission and some kind of quest, it, it, it keeps me going. And while I'm alive, I think that's better than the opposite. If you were to sum up that drive, that philosophy, I guess your approach to what it is you do and who you are as a person. The, that's the first uh, few words of my book. This is my motto from mess comes what's next. Mm. I'm a messy spirit. I have a lot of mess in my 
family's past, my history, my brain can jump around. I feel sadness quite often. Hmm. And so that's the mess. Look, I don't know how deep I want to get into it right now because it will no, take no, no, a while, no. but I didn't, I did, I did an event in December where I often, I'd often do some really, uh, I often do oversharing at some of my talks hmm. and I slide it in after a full day. It'll be like 15 minutes of talk, talking about my history. And then I try to introduce some strategy frameworks to show people how to try to apply strategy to your life, which is essentially to try to work some psychology and philosophy in different ways of looking at the world in, into your operating system. And then in December of 2019, I decided after this Kickstarter uh, launch of, of the book, I, I did an event in New York where about 60 people came, hour and a half, no presentation. I wanted to use them as the presentation. So I used them mm. to, to talk through concepts like ideas, lateral thinking and insights, etc. And I told my, a lot of my painful story and, mm. I'm tired. Of, I'm I'm so tired of the stories. But you know, my family fell apart at a relatively young age. My mum was molested by several people mm. at different times. Um, pretty pretty chaotic actually. Growing up in many ways, I bounced between homes a little bit. I was fortunate mm. enough to get a, a good education, and that was my stability. But I spent a mm. lot of my life alone on, on buses, sometimes two hours to my dad's at a yeah. like really young age. And so the mess just comes from never really feeling that stable and safe. Uh, and mm. I, I managed to somehow, I, I think I was born with a brain that actually had something to do. And I was lucky enough that to, to find interest in study and work. And so I applied myself through high school in between mm. you know, carrying weapons around Glebe stupidly yeah, and yeah, um, yeah. getting caught up in some stuff, but never in a significant, significant way, usually around it, but not in it, in it. Mm. And that's kind of, that was me. I was around it, but not in it, in it. A little bit of an outside. I never knew where to fit in. My brain is busy. It thinks a lot. It has <laughs> lots of yeah. places to go. Most people don't want to deal with that sort of stuff. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. I like these kinds of conversations. Most people can only have a conversation like this every now and then, if at yeah. all. It's, it's so that's, like, that's some of the mess. I, look, I, I can totally appreciate that. And it feels like you and I are quite similar in a way that we were trying to make sense of um, our lives and uh, you, we were born into a set of circumstances that for others, others may have seemed to be not ideal, but we adapted, we coped, we, we worked our way through it. You gotta, you gotta work out what to, you gotta work out what to do with these stories. Like they used yeah. to eat me and now yeah, I'm like, yeah. that's, I put that energy into what I do. And there's something that might interest you if you've not come across it yet. It's called the, uh, the ACEs something like the ACEs checklist, ACE. And it's, I think it's a 10 question survey of sorts that doctors can now do to try to work out if someone's had sustained trauma in their life, because trauma mm. was generally understood as being like a really big situation or several big incidents. And now what psychologists and doctors are looking at is you could have all of these things happening, you know, family falling apart, mental health problems in the family, a, a parent who's abused and, there are questions. I think those three sentences have uh, have questions in this test, and these things really do affect you. And you know what I've yearned for over the years is a sense of solid identity, mm. uh, and that's what I get through committing to this strategy community. Because the strategy mm. community, meet to me, is just a front door to uh, critical thinking and, and creativity. And it's so important to acknowledge and realize that. The more we talk about these experiences, 
the more the concept of perfection or living the ideal life is just this myth. You know, everyone, regardless of yes, who you true. are, has had some sort of struggle. And I mean, it, it is to be human, right? You, you have to have some form of struggle to to be able to evolve and adapt and question. Otherwise, you know, we'd be stagnant. You know, we wouldn't need to. Exactly. We wouldn't need to. So it's, it's, it's ironic in a sense because, you know, we, we put so much pressure on ourselves and we were so apologetic internally about the circumstances that we were born into or otherwise. But um, <laughs> everyone, everyone has something. There is always a rough patch in everyone's lives, whether it be now or later. Um, so your bite of wisdom is... I'll, I'll give you my bite of wisdom. This, this is my motto right now. It's from mess comes what's next. From mess comes what's next. That's really powerful. From mess comes what's next. It's how I see the world and it makes me feel optimistic. It's an optimistic statement and it mm-hmm. doesn't deny negativity. I don't yeah. like cultures that deny pain as being negative and depression yeah. is negative or a critique of something is negative. Ah, it's ridiculous. From mess comes what's next. keeps me steady. keeps me active. It's deep and it's purposeful. It is a visual collection of words that i can see <laughs> yeah it's not latin by any means <laughs> i always joke about viking words yeah and they always, all anglo-saxon they, words you know they're very, very this is exactly what they, they are right <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah they're just i'm like the words that we the words that you see on a piece of paper and you're like that's oh gosh i've said it thousands of times that's english where did that come from yeah. it's like it's a viking <laughs> word and i've got no idea where mess comes from but it's it's like that, you know, it's short. And- Any quick tips for a young strategist looking to carve out a career in this game? Uh, I, I love a broad question like that because the smart ass in me would respond to a question like that by saying, ask more specific questions. <laughs> I love it, mate. That's and, good. and that can be It's an honest answer. Can, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, I don't want to take too much more of your time. I have to say it's been an absolute, absolute pleasure. Before we go, though, where can we find out more about uh, strategy is your words. Where can we find out more about you? You can find me at Mark Pollard on Instagram and Twitter and then www.sweathead.co. That's where I'm building this little fortress of, of mine. And uh, I feel like I'm just starting and it's exciting to be four decades into being alive and to feel that I'm just starting. I want to feel like I'm just starting something forever as, as best I can. So that's where you can find me. Thank you, man. And uh, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Um, I'm going to follow your career and your uh, trajectory skybound for a long time, man. I'm sure, you know, I've, I love your work. I love the way you think. More power to you, man. I've really appreciated, really appreciated Thank the chat. Thank you. All right. But I'm going to end with the word pineapple. <laughs> pineapple, I love it. Thanks for having me, James. It's been fun. See Thank you, man. you so Bye. much, man. Cheers. Peace. Peace. If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word, jamesbside.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at B-Side Podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at jamesbside.com. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. The B-Side with James Barrow is produced by me, and I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, cheers. Cheers.